All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Illusion of Consensus podcast, hosted by myself, Rav Rora, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. We do our episodes every week, and in addition to that, I do a number of one-on-one interviews with top scientists, epidemiologists, and journalists. And I'm very excited today to bring you Dr. Joseph Latipo, who is the Florida Surgeon General and I have greatly appreciated and admired his inspiring and courageous leadership throughout the COVID pandemic and his continued advocacy for, for uh, uh, safe and effective um, pharmaceutical drugs and vaccines. And he's really been holding FDA and CDC accountable for uh, the vaccines they've been pushing on everyone and he's continued to work on that front with a fantastic letter he wrote to those two entities and we look forward to talking about that um dr latipo thank you for coming on hey thank you for having me i'm very happy to be chatting with you and uh hello to my to my friend jay my main squeeze jay (laughs) yeah jay's awesome yeah he speaks very highly of you and i'm glad you guys are collaborating on, on various things. Yeah. All right. So I really want to chat about, uh, this letter, um, that you've written to the FDA and the CDC. This was May 10th. Um, and, uh, previously you had written a letter to them and then they responded to you and I got to tell you, man, and I'm, I'm curious, maybe first you can give me your thoughts on the letter that they wrote to you in response to your initial letter. But that letter was incredibly fallacious, overly simplistic, not sophisticated, uh, resorting to various um, various fallacies on, on safe and effective and comparing vaccinated versus unvaccinated people, not actually addressing the concerns that you raised in your initial uh, letter, not actually taking into account the serious safety concerns that you also highlighted. Do you want to first give me your, your thoughts on how the FDA and the CDC responded to you initially? And then we'll chat about your, your new letter. Yeah, sure, Rob. I think, what do I think? I, I think I was, I was grateful that they actually responded because as everyone who has been an honest observer of, of dissenting opinions during the pandemic knows engagement with uh with uh, with the forces that have directed the train wreck of a course we've taken through the pandemic has just been a a non-starter so you know you look back and what of course the fda the cdc the, the federal government, the current, uh, the current executive leadership, and a lot of state health officials want is for them and for Americans to live in a state of denial. But, you know, denial, it's not a healthy place to be, and it also robs us of the opportunity to learn and do better in the future. And that's, that's probably the, the biggest problem with, with denial. And it, and so it's it's very important to remember just how wrong these leaders were. You know, you know, please don't forget that these are the these were the people who, you know, were screaming up and down on 
on television that, you know, that there were these new vaccines for COVID-19 by Pfizer and Moderna that, you know, that you, you'll stop the spread. You'll be an endpoint for the, for the virus if you take them. And these were the people that were, were years ago, like the American Academy of Pediatrics had issued guidance about limiting screen time because duh, it's bad for kids to be engaged in screens for long periods of time when they should be outside, right? Or engaged with their friends and, and playing and running around and, and, and growing and, 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 and just turn that off and instead you know, used scientific gymnastics in terms of their wording to justify sticking kids in front of screens for hours a day for quote unquote remote schooling. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm going to continue because it's really important to just see just how wrong these guys were. And no one ought to forget how, you know, these guys were marching peacock chest out on television is saying that little, little kids should be wearing masks during a time of life, you know, two, three years old, when they are learning speech and they're learning how to interpret facial expressions and, you know, and they're learning how to, you know, be themselves and, and they're growing and getting stronger and, and communicating. And they were, these people were, were trying to convince Americans that, that a strategy, a policy of, of putting masks on them for a bunch of hours a day was the quote unquote right thing for a virus that is is very nearly harmless in the vast 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 majority of healthy children uh, so these and and let's not forget that they were you know the leadership at the executive level thought it was appropriate to force every working adult in America with very few exceptions, to take a new vaccine that, by the way, never even stopped spread. And that was never even measured in the initial studies. So you know, they, they're so perverse. And it's not that they were doing these things and saying these things in a vacuum. You know, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya was, was talking about the mandates and the lockdowns and the school closures. Dr. Martin Kulldorff was doing that. Many, many, many doctors, Dr. Simone Gold was doing that, Dr. Robert Malone was doing that. Many, many, many doctors around the country and around the world were voicing opposition. But all that time, they got very little actual airtime, very little actual airtime. It was very grassroots in terms of their ability to influence the, 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 the thoughts and beliefs of their fellow Americans. And so when the, just the fact that the FDA and the CDC would write back was I, I was I was actually surprised. And uh, and and yes, I agree with you. Their letter was convoluted. And again, there's a lot of scientific gymnastics. And I don't we don't go into that in great detail in our response. Uh, it's more technical. It's a it's a discussion that of some of the studies that they choose to cite, some of the things that they say, and some of the things they don't say, but are also true, uh, that would influence the validity of the statements they make. They I, I can't help but believe that they know exactly what they're doing, and it's pretty effing gross to you know, just to be frank about it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, and I. 
you know, for some people this might be too specific, but I think this is very interesting and many people will find uh, us talking about it um, intriguing. Um, when it comes to specific claims in that letter, like just so many things that I thought were fallacious, like in that letter response to you, they they identify and say that the vaccines have been linked to thrombosis, uh, blood clots, myocarditis, pericarditis. They say that, but then uh, one or two paragraphs down, then they say, well, this has been approved using emergency use authorization, and we have found that the benefits outweigh the harms. And it's like, for who? Like, for who do the benefits outweigh the harms? For everyone? Is that, is that really true? It, the benefits really outweigh the harms for young and healthy men in their teens, 20s, or 30s? I mean, is this mostly older people, the benefits outweigh the harms? Or, or who are we talking about here? So, so I mean, that, that's just one example. There, you know, other examples, they're critiquing your, your usage of VAERS, um, which you address in your, your response after that. Oh, absolutely. It, absolutely. And with VIRS, it's, it's, um, it's interesting because science, like hardcore science and scientific debate, used to be really in a scientific arena. And, and people with, with, with training and expertise in the areas, in the relevant areas, would duke it out in, you know, in journal articles and other ways. But uh, COVID was interesting because it drug is science out into the mainstream. And so you have, you know, public awareness of VAERS and you've got people thinking, some people think that it's totally useless, not because they understand necessarily the way in which data gets into VAERS, but because it's been part of the, uh, the, uh, the communication strategy of the, the CDC and FDA. So, so just stepping back, the it's important to have data, and we we need data to, to you know to understand questions of efficacy, to understand questions of safety, and 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 that is that's appropriate. And there are different types of data. The you know the VIRS is almost it has almost become an instrument that they reflexively use to. Uh, to refute concerns about about safety on the grounds of of validity, and you know, and so so to put aside there, and it, it's really I'm, I think I'm I'm, I'm going to need to take a, a an antiemetic or something as a drug for nausea because what they're doing it's actually it's very gross. So just to put it put aside sort of that for a moment and 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 their propaganda around it. You look at the system. It's a data collection system that is, you know, it's it's based on reports uh, that you know, that are produced in the community and somehow make their way into VIRS at a rate that is, you know, it's correlated with lots of different things, such as, for example, how aware people are of VIRS, how 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 easy it is for people to even navigate it and use and, and actually upload data to it. So a lot, a lot of different factors go into it, and that's you know that's fine. That's just it is just what it is. But to uh, to conclude, and and of course another 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 factor that influences what makes it severe is, is a factor is is just 
the safety of of the product, the safety of the of the vaccine. That that is another factor. So, you know, so it has to be interpreted in that context, which is very appropriate to do, and it has a lot of limitations. But it's not useless. So in our case, you know, we saw a about a four hundred percent increase in the number of vaccines, uh, number of uh, vaccines administered during the uh, pandemic, but something like a, I think a seventeen hundred percent increase in the number of adverse events reported, and over a four thousand percent increase in the number of of serious adverse events. And you know, it absolutely it, it, is it possible that. This, the, the increase in reporting is, is totally due to just uh, people being more aware. I mean, it's possible. Does it make any sense in the world to put every egg in that basket? Of course it doesn't make every, any sense in the world, particularly when there are, there's a plethora of different types of, of adverse events that have been reported in the literature. So the, their their preference to ignore, which is again what happened all throughout the pandemic, when when you know doctors and or PhD scientists would say, "Hey, I, I don't think this is a good policy to you know to to force mask children or to close the schools. I think that's going to be more harmful than beneficial, or to you know to force people to close their businesses or to promote fear or to promote." social separation and disconnection. I don't think that's a wise strategy. Just as that was ignored and those concerns are ignored, they think they can get away with ignoring this increase. And you know, my concern, I don't know with certainty, uh, but my concern from the totality of the evidence is that it's more than awareness or reporting. And it's definitely, the, another really disgusting thing they like to say is that uh, is it, they like to pretend is true, is that it's it's totally attributable to um, to the to the fact that quote unquote doctors um, people providing COVID nineteen vaccines are quote unquote required to provide entries. If 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 people providing COVID nineteen vaccines were actually disciplined about really fastidious about about entering adverse events after they administer these mRNA COVID-19 vaccines, there would probably be 50 times as many reports in VIRS. Uh, so it's, so they, they, you know, they want to take this, a single path. Also, if I can just interrupt you for a second, like doctors that I've spoken to, like they say, there's an immense amount of pressure not to report adverse Absolutely. events. Absolutely. And some and sometimes you don't know if it's an adverse event. Like this patient just got an acute cardiac condition two weeks after the vaccine. He's a young male. Do we know for sure? I mean, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's likely, but possibly not. So doctors are they're pressured not to. And sometimes you don't, you genuinely don't know. And uh, other times it's doctors are overworked and they're overburdened. And from what I've been told, it's a lot of paperwork to file these adverse reports. So, I mean, all those things work against this myth that some people have, well, oh, maybe VAERS is accurately reported or overreported. It's likely underreported in reality. Well, the CDC has acknowledged that in the past. I mean, they, they don't say anything about that anymore. 
but it's you know it's been formally studied. I mean, it, it's totally underreported. Historically, that's always been the case. And anyone, like you said, for some reasons you said, and for reasons even beyond that, anyone who works in clinical medicine knows that it's underreported. It just, which is not that's not a bad thing. It's it's still representative of something. But what is bad is pretending that everything's okay when you don't know if everything's okay. And that's been the straight-up playbook of the CDC and the FDA. And it's gross, and we're going to keep hammering them. And I just, just want to quickly get your response on some of the other claims they made, uh, one of which I already mentioned. You know, They identify in their response to you that, yes, there are serious adverse events linked to the vaccine, but then they say a couple paragraphs down, Based on our EUA approval and our and our rigorous testing and studying and surveillance of these events, we uh, we find that the risks or the benefits of vaccination outweigh the harms. Right, and I'm curious about your thoughts on that as well as um, this other piece. You know, they say um, that those people up to date on their vaccination have a uh, almost ten times lower risk of dying from COVID than those who are unvaccinated and a 2.4-fold lower risk of dying from COVID than do those who were vaccinated but had not received their updated bivalent vac vaccine. I mean, all of this, the problem with this is it's, it's observational data, right? So you have two groups, unvaccinated and vaccinated, and you find the vaccinated group has almost 10 times lower chance of dying. Well, are those groups really equal? I've talked to Dr. Freeman, and I'll, we'll briefly chat about a study in, in a couple minutes here because you mentioned it. You know, he was explaining to me, and, and others have as well, that those two groups are actually quite unequal, and usually the vaccinated um, group tends to be healthier, less obese, more affluent, more health conscious. And so making that kind of claim is totally misleading. And, you know, for the public to read this, people who aren't aware of what's really going on here, they're just going to take that in and just assume, well, oh, if I get the vaccine, I'll have a 10 times lower risk of dying. But again, it's like, who are you? What is your health condition? Um, you know, are, are you exercising regularly? Are you healthy? Or do you have a healthy weight? Um, do you have any comorbidities? Like all of these are factors that are missed in this very simplistic narrative. So I'm, I'm curious on, first of all, they, their response to you that um, the, the benefits outweigh the harms. And then secondly, their, their misleading comparison about vaccinated people having better outcomes compared to the unvaccinated population. Yeah, those, you, you have great points, Rob. I'll, I'll start with the second point. And you're completely correct. There are major problems with, with uh, there are major weaknesses with these, those studies, and those weaknesses are actually are actually demonstrated in at least one of the p papers that they reference. So one of the papers they referenced about how the risk of death was lower for people who received COVID nineteen vaccines. Well. One of those papers actually shows that it's not just COVID-19 that the risk of death is lower for. The risk of death was was lower for causes of death that were unrelated to COVID-19 vaccination. And they were, pardon me, that were unrelated to COVID-19. And they were, and it wasn't a little bit. I, I'm trying to remember right now what that study estimated, but it was, it was something like a 50%. It was somewhere in that neighborhood, a lower risk of, death so it's so <laughs> it's one thing and even though the clinical studies didn't show this the randomized clinical trials it's one thing to claim that um that the risk of death from COVID-19 is lower after 
after taking one of the mRNA COVID-19 shots. And there, you know, there, there's, there's some evidence that supports that, at least in the past. But it's another thing to claim that these vaccines are also lowering non-COVID-19 death, which was never demonstrated in the mRNA COVID-19 clinical trials by Pfizer and Moderna. And they do that and they know better. So it's, it's just, it's really another example of the, both the, just the, the scientific corruption that they, that they engage in and, and, and they seem very comfortable in engaging in, which is why you, you've got to, you you've just you just have to remove the leadership there to have uh, to have a uh, future that has integrity. And then the first point, I uh, you're absolutely right. It's like, well, what do you mean the benefits outweigh the risk? Is, is that true for young people? Is that true for children? Is that true for you know, for you know middle-aged men? Is that true for older older women? It's it's a who've already had COVID, right, or who've had COVID twice. I mean, how you know? Do you really know? And how, how do you reach those conclusions when you've got these studies at this point that are non-randomized and clearly have huge selection with people who are more likely to uh, to live longer anyway because you know because of the plethora of 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 risk that's attenuated when people have higher income and more education and all that, you know, you, you, it's, it's almost impossible to adjust for all those, for all those risk factors that reduce a person's risk of, of dying, but, and are also associated with uptake of COVID-19 vaccines. So it's, it's, uh, I mean, it is a question and, you know, here in Florida, my sense uh, truly is I, I really it's not clear to me, particularly because of the, you know, just the, the safety risks associated with these mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. I mean, it's not clear to me that anyone should be taking them at this point. Before we get to some points from your letter response, lastly, in, in their initial response to you, they end with saying that, quote, we stand firmly behind the safety and, eff- uh, and effectiveness of the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines, which are fully supported by the available scientific data. Staying up to date on vaccination is the best way to reduce the risks of death and serious illness or hospitalization from COVID and misleading people by overstating the risks or emphasizing the risks without acknowledging the overwhelming benefits unnecessarily causes vaccine hesitation and puts people at risk of death or serious illness that could have been prevented by timely vaccination. I mean, wow, they're alleging a lot of things about you, you know, what you're doing in your, in your letters. And there's, they're making, again, more claims that are fallacious, right? If, if you stay up to date with uh, vaccination, that is, your, that is the best way to be protected. And it's, again, up to date. I mean, the bivalent boosters, like how, how much data do we have on, on bivalent boosters and how many people are, are taking them? And are they really necessary? I mean, those are those are some pretty heavy allegations they're making against you, and it's still strange why they're firmly standing behind the safety and effectiveness. Meanwhile, accusing you of putting people essentially at harm and risk of death and serious illness due to your, you know, your emphasizing of the risks without acknowledging the overwhelming benefits. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> love, love the word overwhelming, right? Boy, that's you know, you're you're really in the science arena when. Uh, 
when you're when you're when you're using that term. Yeah, man. Yeah, you know they they can stand. It, it, yeah, I, they, where they stand is fine. I'm I'm definitely never gonna stand where they stand. It, uh, just because it, it it truly is. It, honestly, I have such trouble, truly personally, with just the degree of of uh, you know contempt for for honesty that they demonstrate. They, you know, so, so here I and other physicians, uh, what, and scientists have done is to provide information that allows for more informed decision-making. Like, they're not interested in informed decision-making. They're interested in everyone believing one thing about, uh, about these vaccines and ignoring concerns about safety, ignoring the fact that sudden cardiac deaths that, you know, that don't get autopsies um, won't, but are related to these vaccines will not show up in the data as being related to these vaccines. Uh, they're concerned about no one asking why we don't know more about subclinical myocarditis. Uh, what's our threshold for seeing troponins rise in in healthy people taking COVID-19 vaccines? Those are all great questions. Yeah. Those, sorry, I was just going to say, those are all great questions that we have no answers to at this point. Um, but, um, uh, I, I think June 30th is when we're expecting, I think, the Pfizer subclinical myocarditis data, which was mysteriously pushed for six months. And, and anyway, go on. But th those are all great questions that I would love to hear the answers to as a young man, as you know, as someone who's been concerned about this. And it's just astonishing that we still don't know. Anyway, I apologize. No, you're right. It is, it 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 is it is it's totally astonishing, and it's just, I mean, the whole pandemic in terms of the policy leadership has been, it's been like being in in a in the twilight zone or in some bad dream, and and just not quite being able to wake up, uh, just because of the, you know, the ease with which uh, leadership at the CDC, at the Fed, the FDA, in the federal government, at the at the state government level with health officials. The ease with which they are, you know, they are willing to, you know, to only uh, to filter the information that Americans receive in order to, in order to compel their their compliance. Uh, so it's, uh, I mean, I, yeah, and boy, let's hope we actually get those data, and you know, and of course. Like, why is the FDA when there, you know, the, the study from Thailand that I think had a rate of two or three percent of evidence of troponin elevation, yep, so evidence of cardiac yep. injury in, uh, in, in young adolescent boys. And then this, this abstract from, uh, that, was, uh, that was presented at a European cardiology conference of, of healthcare employees in Switzerland, and their rate of troponin elevation was something around three percent. Around three percent. Yeah, you, know, yeah, you mentioned yeah. both those in your letter. Yeah, and that's yeah. in adults. Three yeah. percent incidence of myocardial injury in adults. Yeah, this is that, right. This is not again. This has been another tactic that these just just more moronic, just effing public health experts. That you know they've said, well, oh, it's just teenage boys. It's just young boys. Everyone else, it's good to go. No problem. It's like no, that this is you know this is a concern for older adults as well, and for you know for women as well. It's, it's apparently just pardon. <laughs> I said apparently. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, sorry, were you going to add something to that? 
No, no, I, I, uh, I, I don't. I mean, not, not really. There wasn't anything specific that I was going to add. Just, okay. just like here's reality, and then on the other side of that are the people who were saying that that everyone should stay home for, and then stay home longer and not go to their business and 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 keep their kids out of school and put masks on little kids that and and not let them play on playground. So it's like here's there's like team reality, and then there's team dystopia, and. It's just not going to change until you just have to. I mean, you've got to strip it down to the studs and and um, and just and, and and start over. Yeah, and just to fixate on that myocarditis point for a second, you know, the myocardial injury, you know, those the Thailand study, the Swiss study. Uh, by the way, I just reported and and did an extensive piece on the new South Korean study. I don't know if that's yeah. been on your radar yet. Yeah, did you want those, yeah. Did, did you see that one? I did, yes. Yeah, twenty percent of those cases they found in this comprehensive database, twenty uh, percent of those myocarditis cases were severe myocarditis, requiring ICU admission, potential heart transplants, uh, some leading to death. I mean, that's a very high rate. Um, I, I, I carefully broke it down with uh, Dr. Anish Koka, a great cardiologist, in my piece, and uh, he was explaining to me how, you know, the, the rate that they found, uh, I think, the highest incidence. Uh, was something like one in twenty thousand or one in ten thousand, and, and he was telling me how um, this is for sure an undercount because South South Korea only something like fifteen to twenty percent of their vaccinees use the Moderna vaccine, and about fifty percent use the mRNA, and then another twenty percent use the adenovirus Johnson and Johnson vaccines as well. And so it, it's the researchers didn't actually do a good job of breaking down by Moderna. And by dose two in young men, so there was, there was some confusion there. But nonetheless, that study just adds another data point to this comprehensive literature now about myocarditis not being this mild nothing burger, this like, you know nothing to worry about, like a cost that's worth bearing potentially. You know that it gets better in a couple months, and you know it's like is that really like some of that may be true, but is that really? a cost you want to bear for a vaccine to protect a disease that is almost usually mild in young, healthy boys and men, right? I mean, is that is severe, is severe COVID that um, serious or that posing that much of a high risk that the, the risk of myocarditis are comparatively smaller? Like these are all questions that we need answered as, as well as the subclinical uh, myocarditis as well, right? Right. Elevated troponin levels, um, cases that aren't technically categorized as myocarditis, but still um, have elevated uh, troponin markers and whatnot. Like, these are all questions that we still need answers to, and more and more studies keep on coming out, and this South Korean study is, is, is an excellent new study that adds to our concerns, yet uh, from what I can tell, the FDA and the CDC are still promoting the bivalent booster for kids down to six months old. I mean, that was incredible. They did that in, in, I believe, the winter. First, they approved the bivalent vax for everyone over 12 or 16, and then they approved it for kids down to six months and actively recommended it. You have Joe Biden, you know, his official Twitter page, promoting the new bivalent booster, you know, telling everyone to get it to keep themselves and their, their elderly family members safe um, during the holiday season. I mean, all, all this just makes... You know, no sense to me that this continued push for the vaccination. I mean, one other quick example, like over 160 undergraduate colleges still mandate the mRNA vaccine shots 
for, like for what? For for what benefit are they mandating uh, these shots? I mean, are they that effective and that safe to be able to still do that in 2023 when we know it doesn't stop transmission? I mean, it's you know, as I've been reporting on this for a while, it's one starts to think like, am I am I healthy? Am I, like, am I psychologically sane? Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not understanding what their perspective is here. I'm not at all getting what they're talking about. And it's just really disappointing. Completely. Uh, yeah. No, I completely, completely agree with you, Rob. It is interesting. Cause I, I, you know, I myself, I've had that experience many times during the pandemic where you're just wondering what is going on. <laughs> you know, it's like, is this, you know, is this really happening? Am I, Am I, you know, the only person in this room that doesn't think it makes sense to, you know, force this nurse or and other nurses who had COVID already or who were, you know, who who worked during the peak of the pandemic without any vaccine protection to now lose his or her job because you know, he or she doesn't want to, you know, take a new medication? I mean, you know, am I the crazy one or... Or is everyone else uh, a little unhinged? And um, it's interesting, but uh, but ironically, of course, it's like, well, you know, just even the fact that you're asking the question is an indication of, of sanity. And um, and yeah, and uh, but it's still disorienting to be surrounded by, you know, by what is what is uh, what is equivalent to insanity. Let's uh, quickly talk about. The one study that you reference in your letter in response to FDA and CDC, the Freeman and colleagues study in vaccine. Um, I, I, had a, I had a quick question about that, but I want to talk about the broader implications of that. In, in their study, um, they found an excess risk of serious adverse events of special interest using the Brighton collaboration list and uh, according to their study, they find that the risks associated with vaccines exceed the potential benefit for reduction in hospitalization. However, they did not have age-specific data. So, but uh, j- just just quickly here, I mean, their study they found a one in eight hundred uh, risk of serious adverse events um, from the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. Um, and, I, and I'm curious just about your thoughts on that, but but also quickly. Uh, you say in your uh, letter, which I was a little confused about, you said one in five hundred and fifty, but in their study they said one in eight hundred. I mean, either either way, those are egregious numbers. But um, just- yeah, yeah, that's a that's a it's a great great question, Rob. So first, I want to congratulate that team. It's uh, for that study, which <laughs> again is just you want to slap around the CDC and FDA. It's good science you know, that was published in the journal Vaccine. It's a great study. They, it's they used, they used, uh, they used you know solid methods. They did the best they could considering they didn't have access to the actual original data, the actual clinical trial data, which still no one has access to publicly, which is ridiculous, right? Americans have to pay, you know millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars and we don't even get to see the data like you know like americans should not be happy about that like we shouldn't be happy about the fact that that the technology was largely developed with with research funding that was nih based public taxpayer money 
the you know the drug companies you know they're terrific at manufacturing distribution and getting Americans to think that they're doing the research <laughs> so the research most of the uh, most of the scientific research that has led to led to medical advances, did not start at Pfizer, didn't start at Merck, it did not start, you know, didn't start at Moderna. It started, uh, it, it, it started in research institutes that are funded by the NIH. That's where most of the research starts. Yeah, but, so, so the, just the fact that they can, that we don't have, we, the taxpayers, do not get do not have access to the data that that you know that we are paying for in terms of the product and paid for largely in terms of the research is just just that's just a real <laughs> you, know, you can you can you can fill in the blank with your favorite expletive so so then so 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 just leaving that Leaving that for a moment now, then uh, then you get these guys, this team, Dr. Freeman, Dr. Peter Doshi, uh, there's a UCLA statistician who yep. is a Dr. famous Greenland. guy, Dr. Greenland, I believe. Yeah, yeah, just has done a lot of you know, has has helped advance his field. So a lot of great great scientific team with yep. the data that are available from the clinical trials. They make some estimates. Adjust for, adjust the standard errors for, uh, for the fact that that the estimates are based on not essentially aggregate data. I'm looking for a better word, but basically aggregate data and not patient level data. And they report these estimates, which are, which are a huge deal. The serious adverse event rate is is that's enormous. I mean, can you imagine? Like serious adverse events, we're talking about things that lead to people being hospitalized, you know, having to seek acute medical care, having disability, um, you know, potentially death if that's included, uh, if if something like that were to happen. So there, you know, you don't want a serious adverse event. I mean, that's a bad, very, very, very bad outcome. And definitively from their analysis. You're going to get more of those with these mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. In terms of the exact number, the number that we used is the number, they, they, they were very conservative in, in multiple ways methodologically, including I mentioned some adjustments that they made of standard errors of their estimates, but also in how they presented their overall findings. So in the Pfizer trial, the rate was one, I think it was around one in 550. Yeah, five, 555. Yeah, I just pulled yeah. up an email. Okay. I, I emailed Dr. Freeman. I was like, I'm kind of confused. You said one in 800, but a lot of posts saying one in 550. And he was saying, yeah, yeah the fi that, that's from the Pfizer. But you didn't that's say right. the Pfizer in your letter. But like, do you think that's a better number or more? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I think it's better because that's what most people got in this country. That is, okay. it's also statistically significant in their study, so it's unequivocal in that respect. And yeah, yeah, I think it's totally the the, the better the better figure to do to use, and particularly given the context, you know, considering that every you know every force in this whole 
in this whole discussion, not even discussion, but every force in this field is just is pushing the opposite, right? Oh, it's safe and effective. Oh, the risks are low. Oh, you know, the risks, the benefits outweigh the risk. Oh, you should take it. Everyone should take it. The pregnant woman should take it. So, yeah, no, I think that is absolutely the right number to use. And, um, and, and that number, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is it might not sound like the worst thing in the world, right. but yeah. it's... Yeah. But it's close to it. (laughs) It's like so much higher. Can you imagine a, I mean, it's a terrible number. So, you know, to put, to give it some, to provide some, some context, if you look at the influenza vaccine, you're probably talking, um, we've looked at, I think we cited a study that made a rough estimate, but we're, we're probably talking one in the, Ten thousands at maybe at the most. I mean, it might be even much, much smaller than that in terms of the the rate. But it's like astounding. I, I, I thought. Sorry, I thought other vaccines, um, almost all other vaccines, if not all of them, were in the one per million or two per million range for adverse events. That was the sense I've that seen I that number used, and and I we actually you know we did some we did some footwork legwork just trying to get a, a a representative number and we cited the paper in the in the letter and I, I don't recall exactly but it's you know it's somewhere I, I don't think it's actually that low but it's I mean it's 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 it is it's it is I don't think it's quite that low typically the influenza vaccine but the study that we cited I, I want to say maybe it was around a one in a hundred thousand. Right. So it was a small number. I mean, it wasn't one in a few hundred, which is right. what you're hitting with these mRNA vaccines, yeah. which that is adds incredibly up on a alarming. Right. It's incredibly alarming. It's very so you, alarming. You're telling me you're taking, you know, you're taking, you know, 550 people who are healthy, and you're giving them something for for a condition that some of them have already had in terms of COVID. Some of them will get in the future and have no problems. And then a small proportion of them will actually have a problem and potentially benefit from the thing you're giving them. But in in that entire group, right, everyone is exposed on average to this risk of being that person who develops some, you know, some serious condition that, that that you've got to go to the hospital for, or you've you've got to receive acute medical attention for, that's that's that is not um, that is not acceptable for uh, for something that you're giving healthy people. That's just completely that's just unacceptable. And you know Americans, we we actually really need to be clear about that because what will happen for sure, no doubt, is that. If we don't draw boundaries around levels of safety that are not acceptable, the the drug drug companies like Pfizer, like Merck, you know, like AstraZeneca, the drug companies will cross those boundaries. If we don't draw them, they will cross those lines, and we're seeing that, in fact, with I, I would say with the this RSV vaccine for pregnant women for and for the babies of the pregnant woman. You may be familiar with some of the discussion that's happened around this. There was a recent FDA uh, vote with their vaccine review panel 
that um, that you know for efficacy for at least RSV, not for all cause acute respiratory infections, but at least for RSV, you know the the study demonstrated efficacy. Where and the vote I believe was unanimous. Where the vote wasn't unanimous was for safety because there clearly was a signal for premature birth associated with these vaccines. And you know, the, I, think it, I think it's Pfizer's product. So the, they were doing some dancing around how you know, to explain away this finding. But there were at least four members of the committee that, that gave it a thumbs down on that point, including uh, Dr. Paul Offit. And I was actually, I, was, I appreciated the fact that he, um, that he, that he did that. I, I actually do appreciate, even though, um, even though, he, he, even though you know, it's it, we, it, we we haven't been on the same page right. uh, during the pandemic. Yeah. I, I at least he's appreciate that he's, he's been sensitive yeah, he's to the importance yeah. of safety. Uh, whereas, yeah. and 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 it really just to 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 restate what I said earlier. It's very important because if you don't draw clear lines around safety, if we don't if we don't draw clear lines around safety for drugs that you give to healthy people, that i.e. vaccines, if you don't draw clear lines around safety, drug companies they will not meet they will not meet the they will not meet standards that you know that that are acceptable. So in this particular trial, one of the things that came out during the discussion in the committee was that based on, I think, the phase two data, they, they were aware of the signal and they were aware of the number of uh, patients that, uh, that were, that the number of pregnant women that they would need to enroll to really prosecute the signal, to really determine with more precision whether or not it was the, the size of the signal and, you know, and, and the, uh, and the size of the signal and, um, and sort of, and the statistical significance of the signal. And so they were aware of that, but they still didn't enroll an adequate number of pregnant women to really, to answer the question. And that's, that's the problem. And so if they get away with it, you know, that, that, that sends a, a message to other drug companies that they can also roll the die and potentially get away with not answering a safety question definitively. And that's exactly what happened. So it's, it's very important for us to, to, to have higher standards of safety. And, and again, just to clarify the number you used, one in 550. So you're saying we used more Pfizer than Moderna. So you chose the Pfizer statistic. Now, if we if we were looking at the risk for Moderna, then we would use the Moderna stat. I think maybe one in seven hundred or one in something higher. I mean, their overall finding was one in eight hundred for the combined trials, Pfizer and Moderna. But the, the Pfizer only was one in five hundred fifty. So obviously, for the Moderna, then that uh, the, the risk would be lower. But I mean, it's still one in eight hundred up until one in a thousand. That's still very very high. But it's, sorry, it's extremely sorry. high. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Did, did, sorry. Did you find their analysis of Pfizer also more rigorous than their analysis of Moderna? Like, I'm, I'm so a little confused why you chose Pfizer only rather than their overall one in eight hundred finding for the combined analysis of Pfizer and Moderna. Yeah, that's a great question. So my, so they did. There were different limitations to the Pfizer and the Moderna analyses based on how the data were reported, 
and and those specific uh, the the specific differences I don't recall precisely, but again with Pfizer, number one, it's what most people are using. Most people have used in this in this country. You know what the and percentage breakdown is roughly? I can't remember right now. But. I want to say it's probably it's probably I would say maybe four five to one. We could do it. Oh, a, really? Okay. Yeah, we could do. I'd love to answer that question. Actually, let's see if we can Google it. Or do you have a? I don't want to drop the. Uh, I don't want to screw up the app by. <laughs> by oh, yeah, not messing around my computer, but. Um, do you, do you happen to have it? Well, if you can Google it, do yep. it. But that, that was is what I estimate, uh, in terms of the proportion of Pfizer to Moderna in this country. I, I would probably estimate about five to one. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, so, and, yeah, and so they, it's, it's, I, I've got at least raw numbers here. Um, they didn't break down by percentage, but about 390,000, uh, 390 million, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> it says 390 million vaccinations administered, but does that make sense for Pfizer? Yeah, for it could. I mean, versus, it could. versus Moderna, 250,000 or 250 million. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. So, so more like, uh, so, so more like, um, uh, you know, two to one or so. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. All right. So, um, so anyway, so Pfizer's more, they've, they've been predominant in terms of use in this, in this country that, that uh, the estimate for Pfizer had more precision, and and I I think that it's you know I think that with a, with something like safety, particularly given the context, using a number that is you know using the number that has a um, that has a lower rate is is you know is is not the way to go. So for example, with efficacy. You, you sort of see the opposite. So instead of um, you know, the conservative practice, if you're estimating the efficacy of something, is to go with the lower confidence interval. Like that's that's typically what you know, that's typically the practice that's taken. So in other words, it's better to underestimate efficacy. You're being more conservative. With safety, it's the opposite. So it, better to overestimate safety if you're you know if you're not if if you've got to pick between one of the two. Uh, one of the two poles than to underestimate safety. Or oh, I should say okay. precisely safety risk. Okay, you want to pick the, the higher Of value. course. Yeah, oh, really? this okay. is an issue of quite okay. safety. And it's not that everyone does that, but that tends to be the practice when you're, again, when you're reporting efficacy, you know, you go on the you go on the lower end of if if you have to pick between two poles, you 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 would use something closer to the lower end, and on the on if you're talking about safety risk, you would you know the, it's 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 more rational if you're trying to you know if you're trying to reduce risk to to use an estimate that is that is toward the upper you know if you have to pick between two poles to use the estimate that's toward the upper uh, the upper end of it. Right, or, or just use their one in eight hundred, which they, they aggregated both of them. Right, that, that was the other option too. Someone could do that. I, you know, I I looked at the papers and and that to me wasn't that wasn't the that wasn't the best 
decision in in my opinion. I mean, someone certainly could do that, but I think okay. that my opinion, in my opinion, when most people are using Pfizer and when the estimate for Pfizer has more precision and when you're looking at safety, you know, for multiple reasons, I feel much more comfortable with the with the 1 in 550 estimate or 1 in 555 or so. And people can reach different conclusions. It's a you know it's a judgment decision. Just like the authors chose to use a, uh, a sort of a, a pooled a pooled estimate rather than using one or the other. Right. Yeah. Well, and the other sure. important thing I would add again yep. is that Pfizer's estimate in their paper was statistically significant. So in trying to communicate it. There's no argument there that the estimate, oh, it's not significant, so therefore it's not real. Right. Yeah. Well, well, e either way, well, one in five hundred and fifty, or one in eight hundred, or one in a thousand. I mean, those are, yeah, those numbers are egregious. And compared to other vaccines, um, I think uh, Dr. Kaplan and Dr. Greenland they wrote a piece in Vinay Prashad Substack to promote their study because, well, they couldn't. Yeah, they couldn't write an op-ed based on their study in the New York Times or the Washington Post, so they went to Substack. Uh, they've had a very hard time promoting their study, um, but they mentioned the op-ed how you know other vaccines with adverse event rates historically of one in ten thousand or one in a hundred thousand have been pulled, um, and uh, I, I believe it was a swine flu vaccine uh, had something like one in ten thousand or one in a hundred thousand uh, risk of serious adverse events, so something like that, and it was pulled. Um, due to that very high risk, yet here we are with something like one in five hundred or one in eight hundred, and it's still on the market, and not only on the market, but it's being federally promoted from the White House. I mean, they, they've literally hired social media Gen Z influencers to go on TikTok and show how amazing the vaccine is. I mean, that's literally it's banana republic stuff going on over here with a vaccine that is not safe and not effective. You're, yeah, no, you, that's, I mean, you're totally right. And it is. <laughs> Banana Republic, Twilight Zone, someone waking me up, you know, pinching myself. Is this really happening? It's, it's, it's all there. It's like a, it's just a full plate here in terms of your choices for, for describing the dis, the disconnect or the disassociation with reality. I completely okay, agree with you. Yeah, we only got a couple minutes left. We'll probably have to have you on again um, if that works and go deeper into you know how you handled the pandemic as well as I'd love to chat with you about the media response to you and how you took that media response, how they were maligning you. But we'll have to save that for next time. But lastly, before you go, um, I just want to ask you moving forward, what, what do you hope the FDA and the CDC do? How would you like them to respond to you? What is your hope for reforming the, you know, those agencies, for them to being honest about vaccine efficacy and safety? What are kind of a few things that you, you hope uh, would happen in response to your letter and the concerns that you highlighted to them? Oh, thanks for that question, Rob. You know, it's so interesting, Rob, because I, you know, I spent most of my, all of my career until, until I took this job uh, as, as Florida Surgeon General, uh, you know, with the, with the privilege of, of working here for the for the citizens of, of Florida and in this beautiful state, I I spent I spent my career as as an academic researcher and a physician taking care of patients. So it, it's working in government was not 
was something I had very minimal experience with. I think I did some research fellowships with with government entities and a couple other a few other opportunities that were with with government research institutions. So this is this is this has been a new experience for me, and as I'm getting to know uh, know how this arena functions. I'll, I'll tell you, I think you really, you've got to strip it down to the studs. It just, there's, there's, there's too much corruption. There's just too much disconnection with integrity. And it's so, I have no expectations for them and their current leadership uh, in terms of the CDC and the FDA for any types of meaningful quote unquote reforms or any types of meaningful uh, quote unquote changes. I, you, you just can't, you don't flip a switch and go from from leading and operating from a place of no integrity or very little integrity to a place of high integrity. And Americans deserve high integrity. Human beings deserve high integrity. Human beings deserve the right to to make informed decisions, to not be you know, cajoled or manipulated with how information is is presented for the purpose of influencing decisions. I'll tell you that uh, that you know, yes, I've absolutely focused on risks and not spent much attention on benefits. Is it because I don't care about benefits? No. Is it because I'm trying to uh, trying to get people to take a specific action? Absolutely not. What I'm trying to do is allow people to be armed with information and information that is more accurate than what they've been presented. So providing more information about benefits when that's all they're surrounded by, often when that information is even biased and inaccurate, it serves no benefit, serves no purpose. Uh, what does serve a purpose is, is, you know, is, is, is communicating uh, in, with the interests of people in mind. And that interest is for people to be able to make their own decisions about their own health with the best information available and not from someone who's trying to get them to take path A instead of path B. So I, I think that you just, you're going to have to strip it down to the studs. And I do think that that, that future, that future is coming. Mm. Great. Well, we'll have to have you on again. And uh, I did want to chat about the, uh, your, what you envisioned for the future of the FDA and the CDC. That was my question, but we, we can touch back on that uh, next time because I'd love your, your thoughts about that. But uh, thank you for coming on, Dr. Ladipo. And uh, I don't usually, as a, as a responsible, uh, uh, objective journalist, usually suck up or you know compliment government officials, but I, I will say I, I greatly admire your work, genuinely. I mean, you've really caught my attention as, as a as a journalist covering this for a couple of years, and you, I mean, you genuinely have my utmost respect for what you've done on the vaccine front on the mandate front and as a leader of florida so keep up uh, the great work and uh let's hopefully chat again all right yeah look forward to talking to you again rob and thanks thanks for the kind words man and i've got a lot of admiration for you too and and wish you a lot of a lot of good luck i love the direction you're going you're you know and you're and your orientation toward truth man so so that's gonna be a, that's gonna be a fun journey awesome thanks man all right. Chat thank later. you. Too. Okay. All right. Bye.